Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hi, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Veronique Tomaszewski. She's a pre-licensed clinician in their fifth year at the Gestalt uh, Toronto Clinic and a member of the Canadian Association of Psychodynamic Therapy. We're going to talk about anxiety and depression and self-worth. So, Veronique, thank you for coming. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me, Richard. If you would tell me a bit about your background, why are you interested in anxiety and depression? Like, how did you get to where you are? Okay, so my philosophy of life is that knowing without a direct experience is not really knowing completely. It's not really knowing. So I have experience in my family, among friends, of depression and anxiety when I was younger, but also in my work as a psychosociologist, teaching and training students students at university, I noticed that their mental health was deteriorating. And we're talking about 18 to 24-year-old emerging adults. And I realized that uh, I really wanted to support their mental health more than teach them social psychology and psychosociology. So I trained with the Gestalt Institute, and I'm now actually uh, supporting these adults in their, to help them manage and come out of depression and anxiety. Things changed dramatically since, uh, you know, COVID started or has it been the past year and a half? Yes, actually, it started, I would say the last 10 years, there's been a major, major degradation of young adults' uh, mental health. So at a university college in New York University, we we went from 1% of students needing uh, mental health support to about 10%. And it's very consistent with other studies at other universities all throughout North America. What do you think has been driving the degradation of mental health in young people for the past 10 years? So there's a long list, actually, of issues that emerging adults are facing. There is, for a lot of them, divorce in the family, years of, let's say, 
fights with between parents in some cases. They also display uh, some of them report abused, being abused, bullied either by uh, classmates or uh, by teachers themselves. There's uh, issues in terms of gender also, finding one's identity, gender identity, sexual identity, and some of them find their, their sense of self and they've been rejected. And uh, there's also a lot of what we, what we see in North America is, of course, students uh, from First Nation indigenous families where there is intergenerational uh, trauma. The list is quite long. So, yeah, those are, I would say, are major areas. So they are either, and in some cases, you have also epigenetics, which is when the parents themselves suffer from a mental illness, from anxiety, depression, OCD, DHD, and or substance abuse, alcoholism, and drugs. And so the, the children grow up in an environment where they either display themselves some genetic confluence with the parents or some behavioral confluence and they themselves develop some addictive behaviors and they consult us also because it's really impossible for them to focus to pay attention to to study and they are really very worried of course uh, about the possibility to even just lead their life and then the last thing I want to say is also you across the spectrum, anxiety about the future and the environmental degradation of the planet. That is actually something that is growing up, uh, you know, in the subconscious as, as a fear, the fear of the unknown. And then if you add the COVID crisis, of course, then you, you have a, a recipe for disaster. What about social media? That seems to have been on the rise for the past 10 years. Do you ascribe yes. any problems to that? Well, social media are definitely an issue, especially for girls, for instance, who compare themselves physically, uh, the look of their body, uh, fat, uh, they eat, they don't eat, uh, disordered eating symptoms. We see that there's also the FOMO, the fear of missing out that you see in, uh, in this uh, younger population. And uh, But I would say that these are more treatable in a way with some CBT, some cognitive behavioral therapy, and and also quite a number of initiatives that exist at high school level now and middle school. But but it's true, it's true absolutely that it adds to that explosive cocktail, right? So do you actively counsel people yourself? Were you studying the effects of these phenomena? Like what, what do you do today? I, What's your role? I do both, and I do counsel a very large population on a daily basis and a weekly basis, yes. So I have a direct experience with uh, emerging adults and one clinic, and, and, and uh, as a counselor, I also also uh, treat uh, other patients at adult clinics outside, outside the academic environment. So what are you noticing from your clinical work? What are you seeing in, in young people and so what I see is an incredible need to be heard. The very first step towards healing is to have someone listening to them. And this seems to be lacking. There's a tremendous sense of isolation and loneliness that may be the outcome of COVID, but it's also uh, the outcome of being raised without two parents, without parents, the two are working and it's getting more difficult. There's no mom or dad. Uh, in some higher, I uh, know, upper middle class families, there are nannies, but they are not very present to the emotional and psychological needs. 
of those children who grow into very, very sensitive, fragile, uh, fragile young adults. And then in, with my other patients who are older, uh, we still unearth uh, quite a number of unfinished trauma business from also, uh, you know, the teenage years. So what kind of uh, help is needed for teenagers so they don't grow up fragile in a mess? So I will say that it's really essential. So, you know, we've, when we realized how at the societal level, we moved away from intergenerational families. And then you still see that, you know, I have less Asian patients, for instance, because in those families, uh, there's grandpa, grandma, uncles and aunts and then everybody lives under the same household, then actually it's easier for a child to regulate emotions and feelings or find someone to who will listen, who will, will hold a hand or give an opinion or feedback. And, and so it's a little bit easier. But in families, uh, monoparental families, for instance, it's, it's really difficult. So uh, I will say that what is needed is different for these younger adults than for the older ones who are often in relationships and have children and have colleagues at work. For the younger population, the need is really physical presence, sometimes not talking much, but being there and to reassure. Because there's actually, uh, at a younger age, in terms of psychological needs, there's a need to feel physically connected to someone else. This is, you know, uh, as adolescents, there's a need for peer approval, uh, there's peer pressure, they need to gravitate in groups with one another and feel each other's presence. And then during the COVID lockdown and different con- confinements that uh, we've been experiencing, it's been really impossible for many of these youth to actually connect physically or simply share the same space and share activities, meals with others. And this has exacerbated their fragile states of mind, anxiety, depression, and in some cases, substance abuse. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. Do you feel like the uh, therapy you're doing in the clinic is helping or it's more of a Band-Aid for the current situation? Uh so the way I work, and I find that I'm, I'm having some results, actually, uh, the way I work is very embodied, and that's what is exactly needed. So I'm bringing different modalities. I'm bringing my Gestalt training, where it's about establishing contact at the contact boundary and providing support for the patients to be able to connect to themselves, to either their sense of shame or isolation, loneliness, anxiety, fear whatever arises in this and then in this particular case we uh, i use experiments be role-playing the third chair talking to the toxic parent or talking to the toxic uh, teacher who was abusive we use many different techniques but the idea for me it's not an idea but the practice is embodiment embodiment to ground oneself into 
into into one's body into the present moment because the work we do is in the present moment there is no need like in psychoanalysis to explore the past because the perception we have of the past is how we feel about it today and then we work in the present moment i'm using also modalities uh using the, the arts for instance uh writing singing also also techniques like borrowed from psychodrama so we can embody a character and using paradoxical theory like pushing further the contact the style used by someone who was abusive or you know some psychodrama modalities are very useful when there is a lot of shame so for instance shame around race ethnicity shame around some disability could be a mental or physical disability shame about poverty uh coming from you know very poor family and being the first one to go to university on a scholarship there are so many different and shame about one's body also so embodying connecting to all the senses having a holistic really contact as best as possible allows to little by little unhearth you know how patient you know deal with what i'm trying to hide trying to, or move away from i want to move away from pain and suffering i don't want to touch what's going on in my body right now so you know i can be you know i'm just talking in the first person here as being like a patient right fidgeting crying being very agitated talking a lot forgetting to breathe and so my work often starts with some mindfulness exercises let's breathe let's bring your mind into your body with me now in the space that we're sharing in that moment if you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes and then we start from there and i apply these different modalities so what what kind of uh, research are you engaged in what are you trying to answer on the research side so what i actually it's interesting you're asking this question because uh even though i'm a clinician and i'm really really focused on healing helping others heal i find that after many years of work and and gathering testimonies of, of of those young adults there is a huge need to reform education there's a huge need to provide to teachers educators a, a training that is more holistic that allow them to be intersubjective and not treat not treat students pupils kids different ages even in high school from my own understanding i mean interpersonal relationships is not taught in any school so i mean mm -hmm. the, the people that are teachers i would think that if you said to them you know you need to address these psychological issues they would say well i'm not a psychologist or I'm a yes. math teacher. I'm a this, I'm yes. a that. So yes. What, yes. what do you do? Exactly. So Richard, it's not about telling them to treat mental health issues. It's telling, it's allowing them to connect with students, not just through the knowledge that they transmit to a student, but also through being co-present in this relationship between student and teacher. The relationship itself is where the healing happens even without doing anything just being present to someone and and you know I was taking an example I had a I have a student who is taking a lot of you know substances trying to deal with severe anxiety when he was in grade 2 he was ridiculed and shamed in front of everyone by the math teacher who told him he could never do math who was really treating him with 
such you know bullying him so much that he internalized that he was a failure and it's been self-destructive since so the idea is to find a way to reach out to those who want to teach who want to be teachers and allow them to process their own i mean own connection with in the relationship between teacher and and, and, and student to allow them to hone somehow how the quality of their presence so that there's more respect, there's more collaborative work, there's more, there's a real presence. And that's very difficult because then that would mean also that, you know, for some teachers who themselves are just passing on the bullying that they experienced when they were younger, right? It will certainly be, it would be a soul searching or it would require them to also question what kind of teacher I am, not just what do I teach? But what kind of teacher, what, what is this extra quality that I can bring in my classroom when I deal with, with my students? Why would the teachers care? What benefit would it be to them? What benefit, you know, do they care that the students do better? Would they see that if they act in a certain way? And again, why would they care? Just to be harsh. It's true. Why would they care? It's a good question. I believe they care. I believe, I believe there's some ethos as being a teacher. And uh, maybe what could be brought to teachers' college in education is that asking, why do you want to be a teacher? And then if it, is it because you have a stable job with a good pension? Is it, but, and also putting the emphasis. So, you know, you are actually influencing and having a, an impact on the students that you're going to teach. That's a certain level of responsabilization. And why would they care? Well, it's true, you know, you, maybe I'm idealizing a little bit the, the relationship that it could be and the motivation that teachers would have, but I strongly believe that they would care if we show to them that it will benefit personally also from this, that a better quality of relationship between student and teacher allowed them to grow as well, individually as persons. That is, so it's a win-win situation. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, you would hope that they have the uh, best interests of their students in mind. I mean, it, it seems like you'd have to make a very simple toolkit that would overcome probably the intrinsic barriers mentally that these teachers have. Again, like, yes. oh, you know, they tell us what to do all day long. Will I get in trouble for doing this? Or again, yes. I'm not a, uh, you know, a psychologist. I'm a math teacher. What yes. things have you found that uh, the teachers maybe are, you know, they believe that they shouldn't believe or you have to overcome, et cetera? Like, what, what have you observed? Well, you know, there was an experimentation that was done, right? In the, from the 1960s to the 1990s at University of Santa Barbara, uh, I believe, or Santa Clara, in, in California, I think it was Santa Barbara, with the SLM Institute. And they brought a Gestalt modalities to education at teachers' training. And uh, it was a success at that time because it did train teachers who, through the training, felt better as persons. And they were, you know, gaining a lot in terms of their own personal growth and own personal development. And so we have a lot of data that it can really, really work well, right? So I don't know if that answers your question, but I really think I'm not idealist when I say that. See, because oh, I mean, I, is this something where you'd have to get the administration to tell the teachers, this is what we're going to do, we support you, we encourage you, or could it come from the teacher level? Yep. Actually, you know, the administration is willing to, to offer one extra course or to modify the way some courses are offered at Teachers College, right? 
if they can really boost the image of the university after that or the the teaching program by having only, you know, award-winning teachers display, you know, extraordinary qualities in their in their teaching. And that, that falls back on the reputation of the university. But for me, you know, even though this is something I'm think I really want to push in a way, it's a much larger goal. The larger goal is that, you know, I have some teachers coming also to the clinic as patients themselves, right? And not as teachers but are beings who need help too so uh, the larger goal is to build a happier more peaceful society at large way beyond education but it seems that education is the very first mold that we all go through and the idea is that uh, with consistency in providing a better quality of education we can build a better society we can build better uh, social connections relationships better companies and 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 working environments that's what i feel i feel that education is not it's not the end of the journey it's a kind of a you know a path towards uh towards the rest of one's life and yep. and unfolding and becoming a better social actor and and a better well-rounded person a whole person who can self-regulate better and then of course the ramifications are large you know in society like if there's less addiction it costs less money also you know to you need to run those addiction programs and rehabilitation centers and uh, if there's less anxiety and depression there are also less suicides and you have many more families who would be happier to still have their child or or husband or wife or friend around right so it's everything is interconnected everything is codependent on each other and since education is what uh, makes us move out of our families into a kind of a waiting room until we are in the uh, wild world at large, the world of work, of all our other activities, I think that's why it's, my attention is kind of brought towards that very, very important rite of passage. You know, the work that you're doing clinically is one person at a time, although I'm sure you're helping many people. How do we, or how do you amplify this and get this out to a whole bunch more people? What's, have you thought about any strategies or what do you think? Well, well, it's my vision. My vision is, yes, it's one person at a time, but that person is a network in herself or himself or themselves. You know, think about you, uh, you know, you have people around you, you know. So when you interact with friends, with family members, with co-workers with colleagues with clerk at the at the supermarket what you present then right will have an influence we we know when there's road rage and someone comes out of the car and puts someone else in the nose that you know like obviously there are some issues here that need to be addressed but there's kind of a domino effect also of when someone is not able to self-regulate or control oneself that the con- then we see the consequences when everything works well and everybody's happy, content, going after their activities and so on, we're less, maybe less aware of the influence we have on others because it works well. So I would say that my vision is that one person at a time is like, in a, uh, is like you know, like one drop in the ocean is essential because when you add all the different drops, you have a whole ocean, all the drops of water. So it's about the same. 
in life, yes, one person, but one person matters because one person is in connection with many other people and that will have a domino effect and ramifications around. So, so that's why I, that's why I have faith in uh, that kind of work, but also I've also led group workshops in mindfulness and where I was coaching a group of six, eight people at a time. And I can tell you that the synergy between the group members is also something very important. So that works too. And, but I would not discard, you know, the one-on-one therapy sessions. I, I find that the effect, the good effect it has, you know, benefits all the family members, the entire environment around the person. And when the person changes, the environment changes around that person. Um, how much of an intergenerational effect do you see um, alcoholism you know, all kinds of other behaviors having on teens? Well, when we, first of all, alcoholism in its phenomenology, which is in actually uh, how it plays out, right, is not affecting just, let's say, a parent who is alcoholic, but it's affecting the children growing up with a very absent parent. When a parent is drinking uh, and gets drunk, the parent is displaying suffering, and also a certain hopelessness about it. So that affects the children, but also is very absent to the needs of a child growing up with an alcoholic parent. So the child comes back from school, was bullied, and but the parent is drunk and cannot really listen to what's going on and there's no support. And when a, when a child or children grow in an environment with alcoholic parents, what we see once they become adult and they consult, when they consult me, for instance, they are displaying uh, symptoms of severe abandonment uh, syndrome, difficulty to, to attach, a broken self, not knowing oneself because there was no real interaction with a parent helping to grow and, and go through uh, major milestones from childhood to adolescence and up. So these are the kind of, of you know, consequences for someone to grow. Uh, in an alcoholic family and then you can add to that in some cases when the alcoholic parent uh, is aggressive and then uh, abuses the child physically then we have to deal with physical trauma then and and a person so it's not just um, psychologically a feeling of abandonment of being invisible of not knowing oneself but some sometimes there are also physical scars from having been beaten up or uh, abused and sometimes it's really atrocious form of abuse there's also difficulty also in trust trusting others when alcoholic parents fight and beat each other in front of the children so you see how traumatic it is and then we're talking about you know one alcoholic parent for instance right and the consequences it has so when we look at first nation and indigenous situation here for instance in canada you see that uh, um, an alcoholic, I'll take the example of I have a patient whose mother is alcoholic and she's First Nation and she's a survivor of residential schools and how she herself now as she's 24 is drinking. And so the transgenerational trauma is exactly that, which is growing up without knowing what to do when I don't feel well and then subconsciously adopting parents' behavior. So if mom was calming down when she was drinking and being drunk and she would leave me alone and stop yelling at me, then when I drink, I can get the same escape and feel like, oh my God, you know, and then this way I can numb the pain 
right? And so mm-hmm. that's how it's transmitted. And of course, then it's, we need intervention. And we need intervention from a holistic perspective, healing the body, healing the heart, healing the mind, and with First Nation, healing the spirit also. If something is broken in the sense of the spiritual identity, which is part of the identity of an indigenous person. Well, very good. Um, Veronique, what's the best place for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? Good question. So our podcast is actually probably the first stop when it comes to social media. I'm doing my work with the clinics, with the uh, uh, institutions I work with, and I haven't uh, yet published in this area. And I'm considering maybe offering some some YouTube videos to in the future. But for now, I would say that, yeah, it's um, till, till the onset, right, of a, of a yeah. lot of public presence. So I really appreciate the opportunity you, you gave to me. Oh, no problem. Yeah, it was excellent to talk to you. And, and thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. You're welcome, Richard. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.